Father God, we begin this morning by praising you, for we are a people that are glad in our maker. We praise your name this morning with singing and worship because you have performed amazing salvation for us and all those that are part of your kingdom that we could not perform on our own. We praise you because your son Jesus has been high and lifted up in both a death that brought us forgiveness and a resurrection and enthronement that leads us to new life. And so we begin by praising you this morning. Please forgive us for the many times this week where we have operated as practical atheists, forgetting that you are our maker, our savior, and our Lord. Our minds and hearts seem to be idol factories where we worship and glorify ourselves above all else. Please forgive us for the times that we have laid down the weapons of warfare you have given us to fight our idolatry and instead, instead sat comfortably in it. Please use today as a reminder that we must be constantly killing sin in our lives or it will be killing us. We want to thank you this morning that you are a God who so characterizes all of the qualities that we studied in your word last week. You are a God with a compassionate heart who is kind and humble, gentle, forgiving, and loving. You call us beloved, and so you look on us with joy and love, and we cannot understand nor fathom this. But we rejoice in this fact because it also means that you desire to hear our prayers of thanksgiving and petition. And so we first thank you for hearing the prayers of many in this and other churches on behalf of my own mother, Penny Rasmussen, and her recovery from a heart attack last Sunday. Thank you for allowing us more time with her, and thank you for the wonderful care she has received. We also thank you for her place as a member of Trinity Church in Portland. Thank you for such a wonderful body of believers that loves well in your name. We pray that they, led by their wonderful team of elders, would know the fullness of your love this morning as they search your word and give you praise. We also give you great thanks for the wonderful fruit that has come from the study through John in which 27 of the women of this church have participated faithfully. Thank you for all that has happened in the hearts of these women as a result of their partnering with you in your work of sanctification. Thank you also for the hard work of the leaders, Pam Griffith, Jen Kanegi, Kristen Howell, and Danielle Spangle. Thank you for the practical care that Sam Norton and Taylor Bomar, Victoria Taylor, Charlotte Medina, and Laura Radke have provided through logistical help and childcare to make it happen. May you bless them all abundantly, knowing the treasure that they have put before themselves into your eternal kingdom. We rejoice that you've provided so abundantly in these ways. Lord, we also come to you now as your children, asking that you would hear us in our petitions as well. Father, we have many people struggling in relational and practical suffering right now. Please bring healing to our brother Tucker Radke as he undergoes surgery right at this very moment at OHSU to deal with an infection in his body. Please give him and his parents, Laura and Colby, comfort and a sense of peace in what has been a very difficult week. Please also bring healing to Laura's mother as she recovers from a severe allergic reaction to treatment she received this week. Please comfort Laura and give her an extra measure of your endurance as she cares for those around her. Father, please grant provision to the families in this church suffering financial hardships in this difficult economy, especially those who have had unpredictable emergent expenses that have arisen in the last few weeks. And Father, even as we're going to seek wisdom today regarding relationships in the home, we submit to you that a great number of marriages in this church are strained or struggling recently. Whatever the cause in those situations, we know that it is ultimately the accuser of the brethren that is attempting to destroy these covenant unions so that your glory is diminished within your church. Please act on behalf of your people to bind his activity and grant your loving grace and mercy to the husbands and wives in these relationships so that they might stand firm in their commitment to you and to one another. 
Please give them resilience to keep working through the difficulties they find themselves in and strengthen them by your spirit in their midst. Lord, we also pray for Kate Marks and Spencer and Tom Holland as they have embarked on a short-term mission trip to Mexico. May your spirit guide them as they serve you and declare your gospel in all they do. Please keep them safe there and as they return home. And finally, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear your word. Please remove any blinders that we might have to your truth this morning. Please remove my errant voice so that we might hear you instead. We have been greatly challenged thus far in Colossians, and we thank you for that work amongst us. Please continue it now. In Jesus' supreme and glorified name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Why don't you open up to Colossians chapter 3, and our text today is 3.18 through 4.1, but we will be beginning in 3.17, just to remind us of where we've been. I am not sure about any of you, but I have been greatly blessed and personally convicted as we have been going through the book of Colossians. Does anybody else feel that way? It has been a blessing to me and my family and to this church, and so I am excited to once again be cut off at the knees, so to speak, and yet lifted up in resurrection with Christ. If you could give one piece of advice to a new bride and groom to help them in their happy marriage, what would it be? How about one piece of advice to a new parent to help them raise a well-adjusted and happy child. When you are a pastor, you get the blessing of being around these wonderful milestones in people's lives. And so I've gotten to see the books and cards uh, that ask these questions and the answers that they've provided over the years. And they're usually great responses that, if taken to heart, will provide a great benefit to the one stepping into this new season of life. But it's also caused me to pause and ponder are these, any of these, the key to how to navigate a productive and fruitful marriage or a parent-child relationship? If God could simply breathe out the answer to these questions for us, what would they be? For questions of relationship really are the questions that consume us most often in the church. Marriages, parenting, relationships with our employers, our friends, our roommates. And so it's no wonder that Paul as he's in the midst of providing practical wisdom and application to the church at Colossae, that he would tackle these topics. But notice with me, as we prepare to unpack our text, that this letter before us has far more at stake than simply how to have a happy wife or a happy life. What we've seen as we have come through the depths of Paul's letter to the church at Colossae is that his ultimate concern for the church is that they would know the fullness of the supremacy of Christ. And in turn, that they would be able to cast aside the false teachers, bringing them worthless religious philosophies and traditions, things that provide them no benefit in knowing or obeying Christ. And so our text this morning is not separated from this goal of knowing the supremacy of Christ, but it's actually flowing out of it as a result of knowing him as Lord. Paul spent chapters 1 and 2 spelling out that supremacy of Christ and praying for the Colossians that they might remember who they are in Christ, to remember that they had become a new humanity, new creations due to Christ's death and resurrection and pouring out of the Spirit and drawing them into his new family. 
Now, in chapter 3, Paul is spelling out what this new identity means in very practical manner for the Christian and how they're to embrace this new identity and new walk and new family. And if we boil down what we've seen over the last three weeks, we hear three commands from Paul. First, focus your eyes on the reality that Christ is now enthroned as Lord over his people, of which you are now a part. Focus your eyes on heaven, not on earth. Secondly, we must actively put to death anything in which we wrongly assert that we are Lord and King of our own lives. And third, we need to actively follow in Christ's obedient example of life in the kingdom, ruled by his love by putting on the activity of people who are united and unified in Christ. And it's now out of these three truths and the call to the overall church to have relationships centered in Christ's lordship that he now steps into relationships within the household. But again, notice, this is not a separate passage. So often it's taken as such. But it flows out of these facts. So let's read it now with that in mind as we start in verse 17 and move on through to 4.1. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name or the authority of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is a bit curious, isn't it? When we think in terms of priority of relationship. Now, I think the world would most often say, and maybe even I would say, that if you were to prioritize relationships, it would go something like this. We would say maybe Jesus, right? But then marriage and children, then work relationships, and then as last priority, the church, the church that we attend and the people that attend with us. But notice that Paul actually flips that on its head. Why would he do this? Well, think in terms of longevity and eternity. What Christ has formed in his death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement is a new humanity in which he is the benevolent king and we are his obedient citizens. But he also uses the picture that we are being formed into a new eternal family into which the Father sent the Son to ransom his children from the kingdom of darkness. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection into this new humanity, this new family, and we then follow. The first family that we are part of is not our family of origin, not even our current most immediate family. It is the family of Jesus Christ. And the local church is the primary way in which we participate in this new, hum new humanity and new family. In our eternal rest with Christ, the one thing that will last is the church. Notice, in Scripture, what will go away? 
our marriages, our positions as parents and children. We will all be children of the one Father. Definitely, praise God, our employer-employee relationships will go away. (laughs) What will last? Brothers and sisters in Christ under the guise of our loving Father. Interesting, then, that Paul prioritizes it in this manner. So look at me at our text and answer this question for me, just based on word count alone. Is Paul more concerned with relationships in the kingdom, as seen in the church, or relationships in the home? He's more concerned with the kingdom. Relationships in the home are then not to be dismissed or discarded as second rate, but they are to be reflections of this greater family, these greater relationships, these eternal relationships, not the other way around. If we left with just that piece of information from this text, it would serve us well. Isn't it odd that we have flipped this on its head in today's church? Rather than letting the lordship of Christ and his church flow into our homes, we do the opposite. We will only go to church if life is going well in our household relationships. When our marriage struggles or our kids are a rebellious mess, we find reasons not to gather with the body, and we slowly distance from the church because we're not good enough for the church. Friends, that is such a lie from the enemy. This is a place for broken people, broken marriages, broken parent-child relationships that all are in need of the salvation and redemption of Jesus. And it's from this place of redemption that the love of Christ should flow into our homes. It's a connection to Christ and his people that will actually breathe life into our homes as an overflow of relationships to Christ and his church. These relationships in the home flow out of relationships with Christ, not the other way around. And this is why, dear brothers and sisters, those of you who are not married in this church, or maybe you have unfortunately gone through the heartbreak of divorce, or maybe you are a person that is without children and yearns to have some, all of these positions and places, this text is still massively relevant for you. Because you are not lacking if you are not married or you are without children. Why? Because you are part of a family. You've been adopted into a family in the grace of Christ. If the Lord desires to place a person in a marriage, an earthly marriage, or give a person offspring, these simply become additional relationships in which you can now reflect the ultimate relationship and the ultimate truth, that Christ has been made Lord by his death and resurrection, and he has drawn a people of his own making to himself to glorify him. Paul makes this abundantly clear in the last verse from last Sunday that we started with. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this is why Paul could say, hey, focus on Christ as I have. And if if you do get married, realize you're going to have kind of split allegiances because you're going to have to spend a lot of time and energy. They're just simply additional relationships added on the most massive relationship that actually matters, which is your relationship with Christ and his church. I know this is anathema in today's world, especially in a country where family comes first. But it's the truth of Scripture. One day these household relationships will disappear, but we will all stand as children of the Most High King, fully part of his heavenly family. Our household relationships in the meantime merely point to that ultimate reality. 
Brothers and sisters, I wonder if our lives, if our relationships reflect this truth. I know this is a paradigm shift for me to really, truly understand this. Well, it's from this standpoint that we can now enter into the discussing the marital relationships, the parent-child relationship, and employment relationships, because we now see the ultimate truth to which Paul is pointing today, which is Christ as Lord over all relationships. Christ as Lord over all relationships. Let's look back to our text in Colossians and begin with the first relationship where we will see Christ as Lord between husband and wife. He is Lord over all relationships, and Paul is now going to speak to us in verses 18 and 19 of the fact that Christ is Lord between husband and wife. Take a look at verses 18 through 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. For such an important relationship, Paul is oddly concise. I think it's because if we actually take Colossians 3, 1 through 17, seriously, our marriages will need no further advice with regard to how to thrive. Imagine what would happen. And I say this to myself, friends. Imagine what would happen, Hans, if your marriage was characterized by putting aside your selfishness and instead chose to be kind and humble and approach your wife with meekness and gentleness and patience. Imagine, Hans, what that would be like. Brothers, imagine what it would be like. What if we were to bear with one another in the things we find annoying? What if we forgave one another quickly? What if we loved one another in Christ, not because the other person deserved it, but because of Jesus? And we're thankful to God for our spouse, rather than going to God complaining about our spouse. But Paul knows that Hans and the rest of us are stiff-necked. And so he then focuses in on why the very thing that each spouse needs to hear is so simple. First, wives, submit to your husband's leadership in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Great practical advice. But more so than just practical advice, Paul in these short statements is doing something earth-shattering in introducing the kingdom of Christ subversively into the relationships that form here on earth. Now, to see this, we must remember the context of the world in which Paul wrote this letter. Remember, when we read Scripture, there are three important things that we always must remember. What are those? Context, context, and context. Very good. The world here is a world of Greek Hellenism and Roman imperialism, and among other things, it was largely based on a few philosophical beliefs. First, that in order for society to prosper, especially the political nature of society, the citizens must realize that the family is the cornerstone of society. Americans have greatly brought this in from our Hellenistic roots. And secondly, within these families, there is a grand hierarchy, and that hierarchy has at its root the idea that the eldest male is the lord of the household. They even had a word for it, pater familias. This was the sovereign authority, the godfather, if you will, of the family. You guys know what I mean? <laughs> In other words, a man's home is his castle, and he is the Lord. Race for the lightning strike. One of the origins of this thinking was a Greek philosopher named Aristotle who lived from 384 to 322 BC. In his work devoted to political philosophy called politics, Aristotle developed the idea of the household as the building block of society. 
Now, God would agree with him in this. But notice the differences between the kingdom view and, and this worldly view. Now, for context, remember that households in that world were not just family units, but also economic systems. How many of you have ever seen um, Downton Abbey? Anybody? A few of you? Anybody ever seen a, a British show where they're back in the days where they had servants? Okay. Think of those as economic units. Like a British manor, the large households of Roman citizens provided work for the lower socioeconomic classes. In our day, where families are self-contained consumers, we don't quite get the need for this system, and we stand in self-righteousness saying, how dare they, when in fact, that is how the world worked. And it needed to work that way at that time, because otherwise, those families would be beggars and dying. Now, it seems archaic, and it seems cruel to us in our 2023 mindset. But for most of agrarian society, you were either a farmer, a very small number of merchants, or you found employment as servants in these large households. So remember that as you hear these words that are almost 2,400 years old, remember this background, and don't look at it through your 2023 filter. Aristotle wrote this, the parts of household management will correspond to the parts of which the household itself is constituted. A complete household consists of slaves and freemen, but every subject of inquiry should first be examined in its simplest elements. And the primary and simplest elements of the household are the connection of master and slave, that of the husband and wife, and that of parents and children. We must accordingly consider each of these connections, examining the nature of each and the qualities it ought to possess. Now, this examination of these relationships was called the household code. It is a system of rules and expectations upon which the Hellenistic or Greek or Roman household was to function in common life. So Paul is writing here in Colossians in a way that would be easily recognized by the Hellenistic audience of his day. He was writing a household code. But to understand what he was doing and how different it was from the understanding of the day, we have to look at his simple short statements and see how the prevailing popular household code of Aristotle structured the home and how different it is from Paul. Here's another quote from Aristotle's Politics. The free man rules over the slave after another manner from that in which the male rules over the female, or the man rules over the child. Although the parts of the soul are present in all of them, they are present in different degrees. For the slave has no deliberative faculty at all. The woman has, but it's without authority. And the child has, but it's immature. Did you guys catch that? There is a hierarchy of rule all centered on the male head or ruler of the family. He is the Lord. In these Greek families, it was the eldest male that was Lord. And our feminist society responds so vitriolically to this that they miss what Paul is actually doing. They think that Paul is in line with that idea that men should be lords, specifically white men, right? Our society freaks out at this fact and says, Paul was just as much of a bigot, just as much as a chauvinist, but their vitriol displays their ignorance. For this household code puts forth something that is, could not be further from the truth that Aristotle puts forward. And it also does not give into the spirit of our day, which has taken that feminist idea and turned it into the idea that not men are lords, but who? Everyone is a lord. They all get to decide what is right in our own eyes. Instead, Paul discards both of these ideas, and he sits in one singular place, and that one singular place is that there is one Lord and only one Lord. And who is that Lord? Jesus Christ. 
Now, Paul was actually being very strategic in how he used this idea of the household code because it was so familiar to the Greek world, and even in our world until about 50 years ago. Paul is wisely using this code to speak to a truth, that Christ must be the supreme Lord in the Christian household. And all other supposed lords must disappear, whether they be husband or wife, parent or child, master or servant. And it's because of this truth that we must alter how we define our roles in the household for the glory of Christ and the benefit of one another. Paul is not getting rid of roles. He is, in fact, speaking to how they complement each other. And he is redefining them according to the kingdom of heaven, not according to the kingdom of the earth. He's not getting rid of leadership. He's not getting rid of responsibility. He is redefining it. And we can see what Paul is doing in the very first verse here. Notice that for the wives, it says submit, but then for the children and servants, it says obey. To submit is not to have a ruler over you. It's to follow the lead of another. It's not to be ruled over them by them as if they are Lord. But then we see that the only reason they are to follow their husbands is not because their husbands deserve it or are more naturally fit or gifted for the role of leadership, but because the wives ultimately serve and submit to the rule of Jesus as Lord, and God knows why, I don't, for some reason he has placed the responsibility for the home and for the church on men. I don't know why, but he has. And so in submitting to husbands, we submit, wives submit, to the Lord. It is the Lord who asks the husbands to bear the responsibility for the spiritual state of the family. And notice that I'm not using the word power or control. I'm using responsibility. You see, the institutions that God put in place of the state, or what we know as the government, the family, and the church, they all have roles of leader and follower that he established. That is why Paul can so easily say that we are to submit as citizens to the state, and wives and children are to submit to husbands and fathers, and members of a church are to submit to the elders, and we are to submit to one another. He can say all these things, But in zero of these cases is the leadership supposed to be confused with having an innate ruling authority that is outside of the authority of Jesus. Any place you see something that looks like that, for example, elders that rule well are worthy of double honor, that word rule actually means lead so that others follow, lead by example. There is not an overt control. In other words, we submit to these leaders only in so much as they lead us in the way that submits to the ultimate lordship of Christ. And when they don't, it is our responsibility to stand firm in our submission to the lordship of Christ and say, we will not follow you. Remember that this entire letter is focused on the supremacy of Christ as Lord and King over his kingdom, the church. So there is absolutely no way that this household code would suddenly deviate from that focus to give husbands, fathers, and masters a role of authority that takes the focus off of the supremacy of Christ. In actuality, these positions of leadership are positions of responsibility and example. Paul's vision is not that homes would have a pater familias or one male earthly lord. No, his vision is that families are subunits of the greater family of the new humanity formed in Christ, and therefore, They operate within the ever-present rule of Christ and the law of his love. And this is a submission demonstrated first by Christ in his giving of his complete obedience to the Father. Ladies, if you say, I shouldn't have to submit, I want you to think for a second. 
What if Christ said that to the Father? What would that mean for your place in his kingdom? In submitting, you are following the example of Christ. Now, this redefinition of the marriage relationship finds its roots in the fact that for the Christian, Christ is Lord over all relationships. And those who have died with Christ and risen with Christ, for them there is never a nanosecond that Christ is not Lord. Paul points this out in our text in that seven of eight verses, Paul bases his instructions in the Lord. Look at the text. See how many times it talks about the Lord. Six times it uses the word Lord. One time it uses the word master. Friends, this section has nothing to do with husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. I shouldn't say nothing. It's that they are secondary. The primary focus is Christ. And so Paul begins first to the wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In our flesh, we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And Eve went astray in the fall when she became not only Lord over her husband, but attempted to become Lord of all. It was not just that she did not want to follow her husband. It was that she did not submit to Christ and became a sovereign authority in and of herself. She became Lord. Dear sisters, this inclination does not automatically disappear when you become a Christian. This desire to be the one in authority must be put off and killed actively. And so God, in his amazing grace, has given you a primary task, to not be Lord. And the way in which you are to do it is a hard and difficult way. It is to submit to your errant, foolish quite honestly, sometimes dumb husbands. Because in so doing, guess who you're ultimately submitting to? Christ. And you are being remade in the image of Christ and not in the image of Eve. This must be a put on. It must be purposefully chosen. Recognize that your worship, adoration, and obedience is not to your husband. Don't confuse the two. Most of you would say, don't worry, I don't. But ladies, you are merely following the lead of your husband as he takes on the responsibility for your family's welfare physically and spiritually, even if he does so imperfectly. And if it seems wrong to you to submit to your husband's lead, realize that this clause of, as is fitting in the Lord, points to the fact that it is Christ you are ultimately emulating in a pattern of humility and submission. Please note that it is also not saying that your husband is the ruler at the top of a household food chain. No, he likewise has to ultimately submit to and answer to Christ in how he leads you. Imagine the weight of that for a moment. The Lord will not look at you and say, I'm holding you responsible for the household. He will look at the husbands. How do we know this? Who was it that ate the fruit in the garden? Who was it? And who did God hold responsible? Empathize with your husbands in that position of responsibility and do your best to make it easy on them. Your submission to Christ, if done humbly, presses your husband to submit himself to Christ so that he can model it for you. Your ultimate worship, adoration, obedience, and submission is to the Lord. So if you have a husband who is trying to lead you in the ways of the Lord and devotion to him, why wouldn't you want to follow him in this and support him as he takes on this responsibility to lead and encourage him in this? And ladies, I know that some of you, perhaps your husband is not leading in this way. 
Well, here's what you do. You simply worship Christ as you know you should, in spite of your husband. Not actively in spite of your husband, (laughs) but aside from your husband. And perhaps it will bring him conviction that he should be leading you. There is nothing for a husband like watching a wife be dutiful to the Lord and recognizing you are not filling your responsibility. This is what Peter was calling you to, ladies, in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your husbands, so that even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. That respect and pure is towards Christ, not towards your husband, first and foremost. So as you worship the Lord, if your husband is truly converted, if there is a heart change, it will convict him to step into that worship and submission himself and lead you in it. It is inviting them to fulfill their role, and if not, then worship Christ in spite of your non-believing husband. This submission that Paul is calling you to is to encourage your husbands in their walk with Christ and submission to him. Do you do that? It is to show appreciation for them pursuing Christ, even if it may not be up to your expectations or hopes. It is to joyfully participate with them when they lead, even if they do so in a clunky fashion. It is to give thanks to God for them in your prayers and to pray for them that their spiritual walk might flourish. Ladies, which of these is Christ calling you to step into today? Perhaps it's just simply to pray for the conversion of your husband because you're realizing he may not be the Lord's. Well, Paul then turns his attention to husbands. He says there in verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love was very noticeably absent from the Greek version of the household code. But here it is modeled on the very love given by God to his people in Christ's death for their redemption. Ephesians 5 helps us with what this means to love our wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It is to make your wives the primary object of your concern rather than yourself. Brothers, how hard is this? in our egotistical, narcissistic natures. Every man is trying to make a mark on the world, and so we have oftentimes told our wives that they have been voluntold to help us out in that task. But our job and our purpose in this life is to not make much of ourselves, but to make much of Jesus. Is that the task to which we have asked our wives to partner with us? It is to make them the primary object of our concern on this earth and heavenly-minded to make Christ the primary object of our concern. It is to actively put to death our selfishness and idolatry of self where we act as though we deserve to be worshipped as Lord, the king of our castle. I've put in a hard day. Where are my slippers and my beer and my dinner? It doesn't matter that you've held down a job and taken care of our kids and run all the logistics of the home and paid the bills. I am the Lord. Serve me. All too often, that's what characterizes our homes and not a mutual love of Christ in which he is Lord. Instead, we are to strive to serve our wives, understand our wives, and help them flourish in who Christ has called them to be. And brothers, please don't hear me as casting aspersions on you that I am not first and foremost convicted of. 
we know that our wives will most flourish by serving Christ as Lord. And so we take on the responsibility to lead by example in a way where we are meeting Christ regularly in our own devotional life. Where we are memorizing scripture, reading scripture, speaking scripture, praying scripture. We're gladly and joyfully leading our family in devotion to Christ and thanksgiving for his provision. And when we miss a few nights of devotion or even a few weeks or maybe even a few months, we don't shame ourselves. We simply say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to lead well tonight. Give me the energy to do so. We lead our family in joyful procession to regular gathering with God's people. We model confession and repentance and forgiveness when we forget whose subjects we are, and we instead build ourselves up as Lord. We model forgiveness and mercy and grace and all the put-ons that we studied last week. Dear brothers, where are you leading your families and where are you not that the Lord is calling you and convicting you to today? Paul singles out why this is often not the case in our marriages, brothers. He calls men to not be harsh with their wives. The Greek wording here is to be embittered towards your wife to be mad at them. And friends, this comes out as harshness and anger. I speak as the chiefest of sinners in 24 years together with my wonderful wife. In so doing, we fall into the pattern of our first father, Adam, who blamed and became embittered towards his wife. That bitterness comes from an idolatry of self buried deep in our hearts in which we believe we should be the object of worship rather than Christ. And so we often resent our wives for not becoming the fantasies we envision prior to marriage that shower us with worship and praise that we oh so deserve. Because of this deep idolatry, brothers, we do not let our wives simply be the people God has created them to be, people that struggle, people that need our care and compassion and concern, people that are beholden to Christ alone, not to us. We need to let them be co-laborers in worship rather than servants meant to act on our every whim. So for us to lead our wives, we must repent from the sin of idolatry of self any time we find it arise. We must kill it actively. And we must further put to death the phantom of expectations we have developed in our minds to which we are holding our wives and allow them instead to simply be the women that God has created them to be in worship of their Savior. We need to let them be daughters of the Most High King, beholden only to Him and no one else. And then we must immerse ourselves in the understanding of the love of Christ that He has for us as shown in the gospel of His salvation, because then we won't be looking to our wives to be the ones that tell us we are loved. We will be looking to the Lord who gives us value. It tells us that we are sons of the Most High King. For it is in this love of the gospel that we are called to then love our wives. And if Christ loved us enough to give his life for us, we can strive to reflect the same to our wives. And lastly, we can practice the call to thanksgiving by praying daily in thanksgiving to God for our wives. Not just in gratitude for their help and support, but in gratitude that loving them and leading them, leading them well, forces us to humbly worship Christ and put to death what is earthly in us. It is to thank God for the sanctification we experience through our wives. Brothers and sisters, is Christ the Lord between you as husband and wife? You know what, one of my favorite 
marriage scriptures is in the Bible. It's from the book of Joshua. This might be a bit eisegetical, but just forgive me. When Joshua says, hey, Lord, are you on our side or theirs? And what is his response? No. (laughs) How many of us as husbands and wives go to the Lord and complain about our spouses and say, Lord, whose side are you on? And what is his response? No. (laughs) But I am the Lord, the King of the Lord's army. Do our marriages characterize that fact? Much to consider and much to repent of and much to move forward in, in God's grace. Well, Paul moves on to the next relationship in the household and speaks of the fact that he is Christ as Lord between parent and child. Let's read verses 20 and 21. Wives, submit to your husbands, or sorry, excuse me, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The first thing that we can notice here is, again, the subversive nature of what Paul is doing. In the culture of his day, women, children, and servants were considered of lesser intelligence and value to society. Children especially were to be seen and not heard. How many of you heard that as a child? Yeah, I did too. And so the fact that these three, especially children, are being addressed is evidence that Paul is bringing something otherworldly and subversive to the status quo of Roman social life. He's staying away from the egalitarianism of our nature, which is self-worship, and he's staying away from the hierarchicalism of the Roman culture. He's walking in the complementarian nature of what Scripture teaches. And so this makes sense since children, no matter the age within the Christian household, are to be considered as brothers and sisters, to be brought up in the admonition of the Lord. We call our children, our two boys, brother, and we call our daughter sister, not because they are brothers and sisters of one another, but because they are our, Kelly and my, brothers and sister. And so we try to bring them up as best we can in our failed and errant way. In admonition of the Lord. And the hope is that they step into adulthood and are able to take on the creeds and the faith themselves and that they will step into the body of Christ through baptism on their own accord and on their own account. That's what we pray for. The Bible understood well ahead of the advancement of human development theory that children need to grow in understanding the good from the bad and they need to look to their parents to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. This is the understanding behind the great Shema of the Old Testament in which parents are called to teach their children of Yahweh in every situation and in every way. And take, for example, Moses' command in Deuteronomy 32, 46. He said to the Israelites, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. To honor the position of mother and father in the teaching of their children, to worship God, is the hinge of the Ten Commandments as well between honoring God and loving and honoring others. And children need their mother and father to lead them by example and instruction into worship of God because outside of this instruction, destruction awaits. And it is not just example in doing things right. It is example in doing things wrong and sinning and then doing what? Repenting and confessing and walking in newness of life. And so to any children in the room of whom there are many, Please realize that the world around you, movies, video, video games, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, your friends in schools, and even your own heart will do nothing but to try to draw you away from your creator God. 
If you have been blessed with a mother and father that strive to teach you the truth given by that creator that we've been talking about, and that strive as best they can to show you the love of your creator, even though they're errant, children, please learn from them. It is a gift that you will not understand until you are much older and can see how most of the world has grown up without that truth. And so please recognize the gift that you've been given and listen and obey them. It will go well with you because of that. To discard their teaching, to discard their love, is not only to discard them, but it is to discard your creator, your savior, your Lord, and the very means he has given you to know and understand him. It is foolishness at its worst. If you are in a home, children, where your mother and father are not teaching you in this way and you see in them a hypocrisy that they proclaim with their mouths to be Christians but do not show it in their actions or their love for you, I beg of you not to become embittered towards them. Remember that they are fallen, sinful humans as well. Know that it is not God's desire for you to be harmed by this. But rather than become embittered, instead pray for your parents and take advantage of the wonderful leaders we have in this church who want to disciple you in the ways of the Lord. Serve Jesus aside from your parents, and perhaps God, in his grace, will call your parents to himself through your example and conviction as you grow. But then, parents, this leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Are we training our children in the Lord, or are we merely helping them survive doing the minimum necessary until they are legally allowed to be on their own. And that training cannot happen in a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-model way. It must be modeled first. Christ must grasp your heart first, and you must be drawn to the Lord on your knees. I still marvel at the number of parents I run into that ask me why their child does not like coming to church, and then I ask them, What do you model? Are you on time to church? Do you run joyfully to church? Your children will follow your example. And if they do not see the example in concert with the word of God, they will see the hypocrisy in our lives clearer than day, and they will grow bitter towards us because of it. To try and command our children to obey and follow Christ when we are not doing so in complete submission ourselves will cause them to be embittered towards us and even worse, embittered towards the Lord and his church. Forcing children to come to church and go to youth group will not heal the wounds of a home filled with the fruits of the flesh that Paul outlined earlier in Colossians 3, a home filled with anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. On the flip side, to have a home that is chaotic without rules will likewise cause our children to resent us. Some parents say, well, I don't want to be the overbearing parent I was or I had, so I'm going to flip to the other side, and I'll just be their friend. Brothers and sisters, our children are built to flourish under loving order. One commentator put it well when they said, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. Oftentimes, that might be a parent. Oftentimes, that might be a child. But the rule that must be enforced is not that of our own lordship as parents, but it's that that the Lord 
is Lord. Christ is Lord over all members of the family, including the parents. For again, the leadership of the parents is not one separate from Christ, but leading in the worship of Christ. And then it is easy to ask your children to participate in what you are already doing. And they will follow gladly because they will see the evidence of it in your own walk and in your own marriage. Friends, I look at my own life and I see that those times where I have erred greatly and sinned against my own children has been because I have taken on lordship myself and said, how dare they disrespect my position of authority, my position as Lord, and I have acted in anger, not in righteousness. Because there is still an ability to rule and teach your children when you hold Christ as Lord, and in doing so, you still will discipline them and will train them. You have no other choice, but you will do, do so in a way that points to Jesus and not to your own ego. Father, forgive me for the times I have done so. And this next statement, to not provoke your children, is aimed at fathers, but in Greek grammar, just as the word brothers that is often used in Scripture, it is a masculine plural to encompass both genders. And so this is a word for both mothers and fathers. Do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. The Greek is also helpful here because it tells us what provoking is. The linguistic root of the word is connected to the same thing brought on by harshness with wives. It is to become embittered. Just as a harsh husband causes a wife to become bitter towards him, a harsh parent provokes a child to become bitter towards them. And so this is capturing the idea of hypocritical rule, as we've already discussed, but it's also speaking to a lack of the items that Paul told the church to put on. It's a lack of compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bearing with your children and forgiving them when they sin or disobey. Parents, how many of us need to forgive our children for the times where they have wronged us? It is in modeling these items to our children that we join with Christ in providing a reflection of the Father. And it endears us. It endears our children, not just to us, but to the Father and his church. If we as parents have been made members of the family of God by God's compassionate and gracious adoption, then we should display the same for our children. To not receive this will discourage our children from following us and worse, from following the Lord. Friends, we must show the whole of Christ, the trainer and the disciplinarian who loves his children by disciplining them, but also the compassionate, merciful father. Parents, we must recognize that our children are not ours. They are the Lord's. They have been given to us for a short time, not to be made into carbon copies of ourselves or fulfillments of our own pathological needs, but they've been given us to be trained under the lordship of Christ. And to constantly belittle or critique our children in both word and action will communicate to our children that they are of little value to us. And they will begin to believe it. And in so doing, we have become Lord over their lives in a rule that was never intended. Instead, we are to declare the gospel to them. The gospel that tells us in Ephesians that in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Amen? A gospel that tells our children that we desire them, we are proud of them, and we are thankful for them, and that we enjoy them. Brothers and sisters, God has called us, his beloved, just a few verses earlier. Do our children hear and experience the same from us? Do they think of themselves as the Lord's beloved and as ours? Is our leadership in their devotional lives one of joyful example or hypocritical critic?
as parents, let's welcome our children into the fact that Jesus is Lord over all relationships. Husband and wife, parent and child. Last but definitely not least, Paul speaks to Christ as Lord between master and servant. Now, before we continue, let's remember the contextual stage that the system of masters and servants in Rome was much more societally prevalent and at the same time different than slavery in the antebellum south that has become our main filter in America for thinking about the topic of masters and servants. This system was one that definitely had its cruel side, absolutely, and God detests that fact. But as a whole, it was far more a matter of the economic system of the day and could be seen far more like our employer-employee relationship than what we think of as master and slave in our filter. But even so, we know that Paul was not satisfied with this system and worked to bring the heavenly view of God's desire of justice to bear. We will see this in a huge way when we read the letter to Philemon, a master within the church of Colossae. Philemon was a master of servants in the church of Colossae. And he writes to him in Philemon about his escaped slave, Onesimus, a master and a slave, worshiping on Sunday together as brothers and then going out into the world and fulfilling their roles as master and servant. And there in Philemon, we will see that Paul calls Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as an escaped servant worthy of punishment, but as a fellow brother in the faith. He speaks to the new reality of God's household as he refers to both Onesimus and Philemon as members of that new family. In a world where slaves were seen as subhuman, Paul recognized their personhood and their value as fellow members of the household of God. But rather than pretend that the entire economic system upon which the master-servant relationship relied could be undone outside of God's redemptive work, Paul works within the system to declare the greater truth, that we as Christians might find ourselves in earthly situations, but we have a new greater reality and identity in which we operate in those earthly situations. And that new identity is that Christ is Lord over us and Lord over all of our relationships. So let's read this last section in 322 through 41. Bondservants, or servants, or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Remember here that Paul is not addressing the world as if he's a social justice warrior. He is addressing masters and servants in the local church. And so it would be easy for a Christian brother on Sunday to look at their brother in Christ on Monday and expect different treatment because of it in the workplace. But Paul says to instead realize that in their jobs and posts as bondservants, they were to not work for man, but for the Lord and to trust his sovereignty in the midst and to do this with sincerity of heart. I wonder how many of us in our current day model of employer-employee need to do the same and quite honestly stop whining about our bosses. Realizing that the manner by which they worked reflected their belief of whether or not Jesus is Lord of their lives. The way they worked reflected whether or not Jesus was Lord of their lives. They were not to strive to overtake their masters or work in laziness in a spirit of entitlement. They were to trust their brother in Christ to the Lord and expect conviction to come from the Lord to him, not from their desire to rule over their master. 
I can only imagine how tough this would be in that scenario. So Paul gives two additional encouragements to help them in what they are most likely finding hard circumstances to keep up this mentality, especially if their master was a cruel master who treated them as some subhuman. How could they keep up this mentality of serving the Lord? Well, he makes two things clear. He says first in verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. Most likely the payment for being a bondservant was not just, except in the most benevolent cases. And so the Christian servant would probably feel the need to revolt or at minimum be lazy. But Paul says, recognize that in serving your masters, you are serving Christ ultimately because he is Lord over all relationships and he will bring justice in the end. Know that in serving an unjust master justly, you are reflecting Christ and showing that your inheritance in the kingdom of God is secure. They were to strive for that inheritance in verse 24, an inheritance that comes by serving the master who died for them, not the inheritance that comes by overthrowing worldly systems. We find that anathema in our culture. For servants in Roman society, they could not receive inheritance. Even if eventually adopted, they were considered illegitimate offspring. And so again, Paul's words here were unfathomable in that time. Anyone who says Paul was for slavery, I'm sorry, they're as ignorant as can be. These words were unfathomable in that time. But they pointed to the new reality that they had in Christ, that Christ was coming and that we as Christians trust in his sovereignty and his movement in time to bring about his changes and his redemption. And secondly, the master may not just be cheap in this payment. Perhaps he is abusive in his employment of the servant. In that case, Paul reminds the servant that God will bring justice upon that master, and so the servant can stand fully assured and trust in the sovereignty and judgment of God to make all things right. Notice verse 25, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Brothers and sisters, does your outlook and your place of work have you at the center determining right and wrong? Or are you serving as if the Lord is your master, your employer, serving him in gladness of joy of heart with your outlook on the eternal reality that has crept into the present? Well, he doesn't leave masters alone. He next leads into masters. Just as with husbands and parents, it is an odd thing in a household code in this time and space to speak to those that are in positions of power and to exhort them in the compassionate treatment of those under their rule. And so we see here that Paul is acting, again, to subvert the, uh, the, the view that there are any earthly rulers that have as their authority themselves and not Jesus Christ as Lord. And so within the system of the day, Paul calls those in positions of authority of employment within the church to recognize the truth that because of Christ's work of salvation... What he said in 3.11 is true. In the kingdom, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Christ, through his conquering death and resurrection, has made us all one in him. And because he is our ruler and lawgiver and Lord, his kingdom ethics should reign, which require justice and fairness. To not do so as an employer, as a master is to speak clearly that Jesus is not your Lord, you are. For these earthly masters will need to give account for how they treated those in their employment. But notice that Paul uses this dynamic. 
one that realizes, uh, one that he realizes will be overthrown and made right in the eternal kingdom. He uses this in spite of its innate evil to drive home his concluding point that Christ is Lord over all relationships within his church. And he does so by pointing to this fact. Know that you also have a master in heaven. And pointing to the fact that that master is Christ. For Christ is the one who freed us from the cruel slave master of sin and ransomed us by the payment of his blood to bring us into his heavenly kingdom and family. But now because of this, we are to give our lives as bondservants, as slaves to our master who is in heaven. And in so doing, he is putting a bookend on the section that began with the call to set our minds on things above. What is above? Our master who is in heaven and has purchased us by his own life on the cross. We are therefore to give our lives to him as slaves of a benevolent master. And if you are a person who is thinking you can't use those words in this politically charged arena, friends, it is the Bible. He is our master and we are his slaves. He has purchased us. And to his praise, he is benevolent and has given us our freedom in him. Our very lives are held in his nail-pierced hands. And this, in essence, equalizes all of us in the church and yet gives us specific complementary roles to play in training up our children and listening to our parents and loving our wives and submitting to our husbands. And all of this is to the glory of God. All of this is to speak to the fact that he is Lord. Notice with me, we're almost done here, that in 1.7 and in 4.12, 1.7 and in 4.12 of Colossians, the man who most likely started the church at Colossae and who has come to Paul for help, Epaphras, is called a fellow servant, a fellow slave of Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to the church at Colossae, saying, even your leader, even the one who is your pastor, he's a slave of Jesus Christ. All of us must serve Christ as our ultimate master, and all other relationships flow from this fact. It is when we recognize this truth that Jesus is Lord and hold it tightly as the motivation to all things that we will fulfill Paul's prayer and hope that we would know the fullness of Christ. And specifically, that we realize that all things, as it says in 116, were created through him and for him. Our marriages, our children, our homes, our employment, they exist for one party's glory and only one party, and that is Jesus Christ. And friends, if you are convicted this morning by this text, I welcome the company, for I am the chiefest of sinners. Try as hard as I might over the last 24 years to lead my wife in the Lord, I was really just leading her with myself as Lord. I have been harsh to Kelly Rasmussen, and I have embittered my own children time and time again because my idolatry of self-reign over our home has existed in greater capacity than my love of Christ as Lord. Lord, forgive me for following Adam and usurping your throne. And help me, Lord, and the men of this church to kill our idolatry of self 
and instead become models and examples to those around us of people captured by the good news of your gospel and the realization of your love for us. Father, help us as men and women, as children and parents, as employees and employers, to show that you are our Lord. Friends, we need to thank the Lord for the conviction he gives us that we have not been holding Jesus as Lord and that we need to slay every ounce of flesh in ourselves so that he can reign. Brothers and sisters, in our roles and relationships of husbands and wives, children and parents, employers and employees, we must realize that Christ is Lord over them all. And not only will we thrive in these relationships in so much as we remember that Christ is Lord, but friends, it is the only way that we are to fulfill our purpose as those who reflect his glory and declare his gospel with our lives. Husbands, as you lead your wives, have Jesus as Lord. Wives, as you submit to your husbands, do it for Jesus as Lord. Children, respect your parents and obey them because Christ is Lord. Parents, teach and train your children in the admonition of the Lord and love them because Christ is Lord. Employers and employees, do all things well because Christ is Lord. As you leave here today, please, brothers and sisters, do not set aside Christ as Lord as if he only rules over the relationship that happens for two hours on Sunday morning. He is Lord over all, over all of his new humanity at every moment, at every second of the day. And when we find ourselves in these earthly relationships, we must realize that they flow from his lordship. They're not separate to them. Let's submit to his lordship now as we remember the reason for which he became enthroned, that he died in our sinful place, he raised victorious over death and hell, and now he sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father as Lord. Let's worship him as Lord over all our relationships. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank you so much for your goodness, for the love that is in your word, for the challenge that it gives us and the exhortation to be your servants in all things. Lord, forgive us when we've bought into the lies of the world that tell us that we can each be Lord of our own lives and that there are no roles in the home, that there is no leadership or authority in this world. Forgive us for buying into those lies, but likewise, forgive us for when we have taken that lordship on ourselves and said to ourselves, I am Lord. There is one Lord and only one Lord, and that is you, Jesus. And so we pray, God, that by your spirit, you would give us the insight and the understanding and the knowledge to be able to see our flesh for what it is and to kill it every moment it raises its ugly head. And help us instead to have that replaced by your spirit guiding us in truth and wisdom, helping us to fulfill the roles we've been given so that we might glorify you and show the world that you are a benevolent authority, you are a benevolent Lord, and your way, the way you have commanded us to walk in, is the way in which humans thrive. Help us to do that today and help it to start right now as we sing and as we go to your table of communion in which you welcomed us into your home, sat us at the table of your family, and held the role as lead of the family, walking us through the truth of the Passover meal that speaks to the fact that you've given up your life for us as the perfect head of the home. We thank you for this and we enter into that now asking you to teach us by your spirit and lead us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.